Hi, everybody. I'm Jamin, host of today's episode on the Happy Market Research Podcast. I guess that's kind of silly because I'm the only host of the podcast. These interviews are being done in conjunction with the Qual 360 North American Conference this year, this summer, actually. This conference will be taking place entirely virtually on a dedicated conference platform. This is a unique environment that allows for a diverse range of both participants, speakers, and topics at a global level where they'll be uncovering trends. It's going to be very interesting. I've really enjoyed the podcast chats I've had an opportunity to do with the upcoming speakers. I will absolutely be attending and I hope you will too. If you would like to attend, please click the registration link inside of the show notes or simply Google Qual360 and you'll be taken right there. So without further ado, our guest today is Steve Fad. Uh, research lead for cloud platform at Google. Google is an American multinational technology company that specializes in internet-related services and products, which include online advertising technologies, a search engine, cloud computing, software, and hardware. It is considered one of the big five technology companies along with Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. Prior to joining Google, Steve has held senior research roles at Salesforce and Dell. Steve, thanks for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Hey, thanks so much, Jamin. It's great to be here. This episode is brought to you by Momentive. You may have heard that SurveyMonkey's parent company recently rebranded as Momentive, a leader in agile insights and experience management. The Momentive AI-powered insights platform is built for the pace of modern business, so you can deeply understand your market, elevate your brand, and build winning products faster. Momentive offers 22 purpose-built market research solutions that incorporate an AI engine, built-in expertise, sophisticated methodologies, and an integrated global panel of over 144 million people to deliver meaningful insights in hours, not months. Momentive also has a team of market research consultants that can take on anything from research design to custom reporting as needed, so you can spend more time shaping what's next for your organization. To learn more, visit Momentive.ai. That's M-O-M-E-N-T-I-V-E dot A-I. What is your topic? And give us a little bit of insider kind of knowledge about your chat at Qual360. Sure, yeah. So the title is Enhancing Our Customer Understanding by Bridging Qual and Quant Perspectives. And now that I read that out loud, I realize that it is a lot more nerdy than I wanted it to sound, <laughs> but it, it sounded good when I submitted it way back when. The main message that I'm hoping to communicate is that I've noticed a tendency in organizations for researchers and data owners to want to own their data, and they want to believe that they have an exclusive representation of the customer's voice. And I'm really trying to make an appeal toward more collaborative approaches that use multiple methods, multiple channels, multiple measures, and multiple disciplines in terms of understanding the customer experience. So when you think about qual and quant, I immediately default to primary research. Are you incorporating transactional or behavioral into that as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Part of the conversation I hope to be having is about using a big tent approach to experience data analysis, if you will. So not just 
people who are running and owning voice of customer efforts and surveys and feedback channels, but also the folks who have support data. They understand the trends of performance in the product. They have access to usage logs and behaviors that end users or other types of users are engaging with the product. So basically trying to bring everybody in to create a common view and a common understanding of of what is it like to actually be a customer experiencing a a product or a service. How much does video play in that? Oh, that's interesting. I I, I think my answer would be different if you asked me uh, a little more than a year ago, (laughs) pre-pandemic. I think it kind of comes down to what you're trying to convey. One of the points that I'll be making in the talk is that Uh, context really matters. And so for some organizations and individuals, having access to the visual channel is really, really beneficial. Um, Of course, that brings with it accessibility challenges. For example, if you, you know, if you don't have the ability to see or you don't have access to technology that allows the rendering of video in a um, robust fidelity way, uh, it can be problematic. But I would say any channel, any mode of communication that helps ultimately build that empathy bridge between ourselves within the walls of the organization and the people who experience what our companies and organizations are producing outside. Anything to bridge that gap uh, is beneficial. The accessibility point is really interesting. I just heard this statistic um, and haven't validated it, but one in five of us have some sort of a disability, which really starts impacting how we do and conduct research. Absolutely. Yeah. It, I mean, I guess technically I'm one of those one in five. I'm um, yeah, I'm sure you'll be able to see this when, when I'm doing the presentation for the conference, but I have to wear glasses for reading. And since the pandemic started and most of my life shifted to working behind a screen, I'm pretty much finding myself reading, you know, wearing my reading glasses or what I thought was reading glasses. I'm pretty much now wearing them all day. And Mm -hmm. um, I used to be able to be in meetings and and take notes without my glasses. But now that everything is on a screen that's about, you know, maybe three or four feet from my head, I need these things to see words and to see faces. And unfortunately, being an aging male with presbyopia, I know it's only getting worse and worse over time. Yeah, presbyopia comes for us all. (laughs) It's awful. It's terrible. I will say that... (laughs) The benefit of considering the needs of people with accessibility challenges ultimately comes down to the benefits of of universal design, right? This idea from, I think it was Ron Mace at the uh, North Carolina Center for Universal Design, if I'm remembering correctly. And, And basically the idea was to avoid designing for any one particular physical or sensory ability profile Hmm. and trying to hit the largest range and curb cuts, right, are the most common example. Anybody who's ever had a, um, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, absolutely, a curb cut is a wonderful way to access the sidewalk. But if you have a rollerboard luggage or if you're carrying a television or something, it's also really beneficial to not have that big Mm -hmm. gap that you have to step up in order to get onto the sidewalk for. That's, that's super interesting. So trends, <laughs> nothing makes sense, right? You look at historical data and normally that has a, is a predictive factor of the future. Last year kind of like disrupted the whole <laughs> <laughs> normalized view of the world. What do you see as trends 
specifically in consumer insights that will carry us forward into 2020? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question, especially now as we're starting to go through the, uh, I hesitate to say post-pandemic, but at least yeah. the new normal, right? Yeah. I think it's, you know, from my perspective, I think my answer probably would be slightly different if we hadn't been going through the pandemic. But but ultimately, I think there's, there's a couple trends that I've noticed and I've been excited about and also skeptical about. One of them is I think it's really exciting to see organizations starting to embrace uh, more naturalistic and observational methods to understand the experience that customers are having in context over time. And so, you know, studies, uh, study methods like diary studies, uh, field research methods, anthropologically informed ethnographic methods, none of those are new. But I'm starting to hear them referenced a lot more in boardrooms and in corporate conversations. And I think advancements in technology, and I think advancements and the accessibility of different kinds of technology, uh, as well as uh, methods from places like journalism and media, where we're starting to see the ubiquity of these technologies and these approaches. I, I don't want to say reality television, but there's this idea that recording and capturing a person's experience over time is normal-ish. And it seems to be made more easy and more uh, adaptable for companies to do it. The other thing I'd mention is, um, so I spent an early part of my life uh, doing eye tracking research. So I actually spent my graduate study years doing work, building cognitive models of how people learn to read and comprehend scenes and text. And then when I was working on my more advanced graduate work, I was looking at the role of perception in high-stress environments and, and how that influences decision-making for pilots and air traffic controllers and, and, and that sort of operator. And so once the, the phrase neuromarketing started to show up, I was pretty skeptical when I heard it. And, and then when I started diving into those techniques, I realized, okay, this is, you know, this is kind of a new term for a lot of old techniques. I'm, I'm still skeptical of it. I don't see it being thrown around as much as a buzzword. Um, but I, you know, I, I believe that the types of techniques that folks are using in this so-called field or discipline are just as effective as many other techniques that are available. I just don't know that it's the panacea that people were promising long ago. And and then the last thing, I know this is running long, so I'll I'll keep this one quick, but there is one trend I hope will become more common, and that is the importance of futures thinking as we understand people's experiences and the products and services we build. I think things like the pandemic, right? These one in a hundred years types of scenarios um, help emphasize how important it is to think about divergent futures in what we are building and what we are uh, communicating to our customers and to our end users. And I think that type of skill set is something I would absolutely like to see more, you know, coming out of the academy, coming out of apprenticeship programs, and coming out of um, our companies. I know you can't share specific examples, <laughs> right? But which is unfortunate because it'd be super interesting. But when you think about like those one in a hundred year scenarios, is the role of insights in that like more measurement or like what role does insights play in that? Yeah, that's a really neat connection. Um, and and to be to be fair, I have not thought about this deeply, so I'm just answering off the cuff. Yeah, 
I think there are there are some examples I can share just because I spent some of my life in management consulting working with the federal government. So these are things that aren't um, they're they're not under NDA yeah. and, and confidentiality agreements. But when we're thinking about, for example, like the future of air, air traffic control in 30 years, what might that look like, right? When we think about commercial space travel, back when I was working on these problems in the early 2000s, it was you know almost laughable. But now we actually have several companies that are actually exploring these things. So the importance of using futures thinking methods to envision scenarios that are possible, I think not only help give rise to opportunities, they also give rise to um, you know darker futures, right? Uh, things we don't want to have happen. And I think all of that informs the types of measurement systems we should be building to ensure that the futures we want to happen are being made more likely than the futures we don't want to happen. Because if, you know, as has been said by many famous people, if you don't measure it, you can't change it. So if we don't have a sense of what kinds of realities we are moving toward, it's really hard to anticipate what the data streams should be that we should be looking at now to make sure that we are going in the right direction. And I think, you know, climate change is probably a good example. I think staying outside of the, the political debate around climate change and what we can do about it, I think there are lots of data streams that we can be looking at over time to understand if the situation is improving or if it's not. And if there are correlations and associations we should be more mindful of in order to make better choices for our future. By the way, I, I just love, I've never, uh, 400 and, I don't know, 20 interviews, I've never heard anybody talk about futures thinking. And that is so interesting because it really, it's almost like, I mean, exactly what you do in every research project, which is kind of a microcosm of that, right, is like you build the end report before you actually field, right? You come up with your analytics plan, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And that basically informs the whole the whole thing that you wind up executing totally. against. And it's a mad lib after that. And so- like thinking of it in that framework, that's really helpful because then you know what things you need to pay attention to, to your point, which you already said, then guide, help guide us, create those guideposts for us to know if we are headed into, God forbid, <laughs> something something like what we've gone through. But totally. anyways, that, it was really interesting. I, I just had, oh, to, had to underscore that. Yeah. So last question, what is your personal motto? <laughs> So I'm I'm glad you warned me about this one in advance because um, this is something I wouldn't even acknowledge that I have. But I think I have two, and and one is something that my coworkers and my direct reports and my students even probably are sick of hearing me say. But it, it's basically have a bias for action. I love the field of research, and I really admire researchers, especially in the academy. Because researchers are often relied on as being the truth tellers. We have scientific methods to use to arm ourselves with data and processes to ensure that the findings and insights we are divining are as valid and defensible as possible. Having said that, I also feel that researchers have a reputation for being overly conservative um, especially in industry settings. I remember when I was in graduate school, one of my colleagues basically said that one of our advisors was so conservative, they're not even wrong. Like imagine having an idea about a potential connection or phenomenon that exists, but you want to run a million studies and prove it to yourself before you let the outside world know. You're basically depriving other people of the benefits of that 
knowledge. And so I encourage everybody in the field of research and outside to ask yourself, what data am I collecting right now? Maybe you're doing an interview. Maybe you're looking at, I don't know, a survey response and ask yourself if that's all the data you have, what decision and what recommendation would you make? You might have only 50% confidence of it, but if you can convince yourself that you can move toward 51%, what I like to you know consider as like a um, casino level confidence, if you know you're going to win in the long run and the cost and the consequences of a bad decision aren't going to destroy your organization, then I think it's worth entertaining. Well, what would I do right now as a result of the data that I'm seeing, as opposed to waiting three, six, nine more months to make it perfect. And then my other motto, which goes dovetails with this really well, is the idea that in order to see real change in an organization, you need to avoid inflaming the corporate immune system. And so, and this, this comes from my time in consulting. I've heard many consultants say this. Change is hard and scary, especially for the incumbents who have, you know, something that they don't want to lose. So just say, this doesn't really make a difference. We're just going to run a pilot. We're going to collect a little data. And by collecting a little data, it makes things sound a lot less scary and less intimidating, but it also gives you the evidence you need to get a sense of whether or not the direction you want to go in is a promising one. My guest today has been Steve Fad, research lead for cloud platform at Google. Steve, thank you very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thanks so much, Jamie. This was super exciting. I really look forward to the conference. Everyone else, I hope you found some value. Please take a moment, screen capture, share on social media. If you tag me, I will send you a t-shirt, COVID-free t-shirt. Have a great rest of your day.